Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are, and you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one and get your calls transcribed free of charge, all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI and investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. My Analyst Academy course is the flagship course in my online school and it's been really popular with hundreds of students. And post-COVID, we held physical drinks in London, which was a great way that lots of us could get together in person. So I repeated that exercise a few weeks ago and one of my students, Amy, came and told me that the course had changed her life and she wanted to thank me in person. Well, you can imagine, I was of course incredibly touched. I have far too few women students and of course I wanna help people, but I had literally no conception that my teaching could have such an impact. And here's the thing, Amy is a single mother and a woman of color and her child, Kiara, is nine and has spastic cerebral palsy, which is why I'm telling you this now, because Kiara is blind and in a wheelchair, and she goes to Beddlesford School, which is a special needs school in Kingston, outside London, and they're fundraising for an additional inner walk machine. This attaches to the body and helps the child sit, stand, and move more comfortably. It aids their muscle development, and there's scientific evidence that it helps encourage normal bone growth. That machine is £46,000 or $60,000. If you'd like to help make a donation, please visit their website. The shortcut is bit.ly bit.ly forward slash btbs for behind the balance sheet, charity one, the number one. So that's bit.ly forward slash btbs charity one and make a donation help Kiara and kids like her. Thank you. Beth Lilly is a highly successful value investor and an amazing woman. She set up not one, but two asset management firms, worked with and learned from some of the most famous and some of the most successful value investors in the world, and now runs money for the Pollard family in Minnesota. They're worth several billion, and Beth looks after their investments in public equities, private equity, and private equity funds. Beth has a wealth of experience and shares some of her tricks of the trade. My favorite was carry a notebook at all times. 
Beth tells us how she got interested in investing when her grandparents gave her shares in 3M, a local company. Those shares were worth $70 when she was a child, and she still holds them. But the value today is $70,000. Such is the power of compounding. Beth tells us how she shares her love of investing with her three kids, explains why she drives a 12-year-old car, and talks about running money for a family who think in generations. And controversially, we discuss whether women make better investors than men. We disagree on the quality of the auto dealership business. I explain why I like Minneapolis and Paul, Beth's hometown, and we diss private credit. I think this episode is something for everyone, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Beth, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you. Now, we always ask the same question at the start. Did you always want to be an investor when you were a teenager? Well, first of all, Steve, thank you for inviting me to be on the podcast. Well, I'm thrilled that you said yes. Oh, <laughs> and it was wonderful to meet you in Omaha. Yeah, I know. No, it's great fun. So, you know, as I was thinking about that this morning. And yes, the answer is yes. I started, I think I would, I, I will trace it to, and I tell this story when I go talk to the students at Columbia Business School every year, uh, which is I, when I was a young girl, my parent, my grandparents gave me seven shares of 3M stock. And I think it was worth $70, my grandparents. Okay. Seven shares. I think stock was like $10. And that $70 has now turned into $70,000, okay? And I held on to it. But but these annual reports would come home. And my my mom would sit down with me and say, okay, your your grandparents gave you this stock and here's here's an annual report. And, and then my mom became involved. This is when the Beardstown ladies were big. You know, the beards, those ladies that used to gather in their in their kitchens and invest money. So my mom had started an investment club with her friends. And so I just was always fascinated with the stock market and businesses. And then I heard a story that, and I was also thinking about this this morning. So during the depression, the 3M employees would pay their bar bills at the end of a long day. They'd go to the bar and they'd pay their bills with 3M stock. So, you know, at, at the end of the month, they would pay their bills. They would give the, they didn't, the stock wasn't worth a whole lot. And this is in the thirties. They would, during the depression, they would, you know, m pay up their bills with 3M stock. And so you have all these millionaires on the East side of St. Paul. And my mom and dad told me this story. And I was like, that is unbelievable. So wait a second, they, they paid their bills. And now you've got all these 3Ms, 3M people, they, 3M people that had paid their bar bills, and now you've got all these th residents on the east side of St. Paul, which is kind of a considered not a, 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 a upper middle. It was just a middle class neighborhood with all these people that became millionaires from the stock. And so I was like, "How does that work?" So I just became fascinated just with the whole how you buy something, how business works, boards of directors, products, the whole thing. And so I just have been fascinated with it. That'd be unusual for a young girl. Mm -hmm. and my, and that, and my, yeah, go ahead. That's the post-it notes. Yes. Post-it well, notes. I mean, it's amazing that it's been so successful. I knew it was a, a Minneapolis and Paul company. I knew it was, I knew it'd be done very well, but I hadn't realized yes. it was quite that well. And you've still held those seven shares. Yep. Those seven shares were, they, it was worth, uh, those seven were, were, shares were worth $70. 
And I held on to them and held on to them. And now they're worth $70,000. And that just shows you the power of compounding. And to this day, this lesson, I, t- I tell my kids, you know, we go on vacation and we'll be driving in the car and I'll be like, there's a public company. There's a public company. We were in Austin, Texas. And my son was like fascinated looking at all the names on the buildings. He's like, what about that company? So I know that your children are interested in investing because, of course, I met your, yes. your daughter. So did you give your kids shares when they were, what did yep. you give them? So that's a very good question. We, I did not give them 3M stock. I didn't give them shares. What I did was I sat down and, and we, my, my spouse and I sat down and said to them, okay, here's $5,000. What would you like to buy? And they had to pitch various stocks. Oh, wow. How old were they? (laughs) They were, let me think about this. This was like five years ago. So they were 13 and 14 years old. So one of my sons is very into video games and everything. So he bought Activision and Ubisoft and another son bought Beyond Meat and Boeing. So just really interesting. My daughter bought, I'm trying to think what she bought. She bought Lululemon. I mean, it was Starbucks was very aligned with what their interests were. And that was the whole point, which was, you know, it wasn't about, okay, what's the PE on this company, but it was about, all right, here's the annual report. And what, you know, what, what are you interested in? And here's the annual report and read about it. And then let's see how it does. And so I imagine in your household, there's quite a competitive spirit. (laughs) Do they, do they, do they argue Do they, oh, I'm doing better than you? I mean, do you have an annual review? Well, that's really funny. No, we don't have an annual review. But the latest discussion, and you'll, Steve, you'll appreciate this, is is that these these accounts were set up as, you know, because they were minors. And now one of my sons has turned 19 and the twins have turned 18. So now they're like, well, we're we're, we're old enough. We get access to our accounts. Turn over your fidelity account. We get our our fidelity accounts because we're 18, we're adults. So I said, you can have access to your Fidelity accounts. You just can't sell the stocks. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm like, that's the power of compounding. You know, that's, and that's what one of my big, fl- and I learned that very early on. Don't worry about, you know, it's like taxes are going to kill you. That's why Buffett has, I mean, he's just a genius in that way. But do not sell the stocks and just let them be. And it's the power of compounding. And, you know, so anyways. And it's interesting because here, We've got these, they call them ISAs, it's a tax-free wrapper. And so you get an allowance you can invest each year within this wrapper. And they've now brought out a kid's version of that. So my kids have a children's answer. But my kids think I'm stupid, right? They think, you know, the the last thing they want to do is get interested in anything I'm interested in. So I couldn't, you know, I said, you know, why don't we choose a stock, Dad? I won't. I won't repeat what my younger child said because it, this is a this is a, a clean show without explicit language. But you can imagine it wasn't. But uh, maybe when you come to London, we'll get you um, to explain this to yes. to, my, to my kids. Now, look, you, your career has been very interesting because you started off. You travelled in Europe, which must have been quite a thing back then for yep. a young woman. You got a job at Goldman, and then you moved into fund management. I was going to ask you, so why you moved? Because the sell side, I think, is quite a good training ground. Mm-hmm. And I had this argument with um, another newsletter writer, another chap in Substack, because I wrote a letter about a, a Substack about 
why I thought the sell side was a good place to start, because you get the input from the buy side and you're very, it's, it's learning in public. And so it, you, yes. you learn very painfully, very quickly. Whereas in the buy side, I think it, it I mean, I, I think ultimately I, I enjoyed my time in the buy side more, but I think I was better. I'm better analyst because I went through the, the sell side process. But why did yes. you go another direction? That's a very good question. So, or in the uh, same direction, sorry. Yeah, it, but just a different, it's a different yeah. path. In this, yeah. Um, so, so I was part of this, you know, at Goldman, they, it's this program where after two or two and a half years, they basically say to you, okay, you know, look, you you either have great promise, please go back and get your MBA and there'll be a spot here for you. Or, you know what, your time is up, go do something different. And I was trying to figure out what to do. Do I go get my MBA? Do I, uh, and then come back to Goldman? Do I, you know, but what I realized, Steve, was, and I had this great, wonderful mentor, Todd Bergman, who who has since passed away. He was an international oil analyst, you know, and he was a great training. He provided a great training ground. I realized, why would I want to sit and convince people to buy stocks as opposed to being actually put the money to work on my own, do all my own research and then buy them as opposed to trying to convince people to buy them? And so I realized at that point, you know, the the importance of getting access to management because at Goldman Sachs, you got access to everybody. So the access to management and the importance of talking to management teams, but then being able to use that information to make money on it, as opposed to trying to convince other people to make money on it. And so as I was trying to figure out my next step, I became friends with an international oil analyst who was at First Boston, Bill Randall. And he had a friend who was going to run the insurance assets for Fireman's Fund. And Fireman's Fund was being spun out from American Express. And Fireman's Fund was going to be managed by Jack Byrne. And Jack Byrne is famous for running Geico, turning it around, and selling it to Buffett. And so American Express had said to Jack Byrne, would you please, you know, come and run this spinoff for us? And Jack said, sure, I'll run the spinoff. And Jack turned to his friend Warren Buffett and said, geez, you know, I need somebody to run my insurance, the insurance portfolio. Who, who do you recommend? And Buffett said, there's two guys, but the first guy won't come and take the job. So here's the second guy. And he said, no, I want the first guy. And the first guy was this fellow named Bob Bruce. And so Bill introduced me to, to Bob because I was talking to Bill and Bill's like, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to manage money. He said, oh, I've got this friend who's doing this really interesting thing. So long story short, I went to go work for Bob Bruce up in Greenwich, Connecticut, before it was a hotbed for hedge funds. And Bob hired four of us or five of us and trained us. And we read The Intelligent Investor and met once a week. He took us through value line. I mean, he trained us on analysis and how to analyze companies and truly how to be a value investor. And oh, by the way, Buffett came in and had lunch with us. So at a very young age of 24 years old, I was learning from arguably one of the best value investors who's very well, who's not very well known, which is Bob Bruce. And Buffett would come in and Jack Byrne would talk to us about the insurance ad business. And so I I made this transition, which people were great. They were like, you're going where to work with who, as opposed to going to business school or working at a more prestigious firm. And I just, it felt like the right decision. And it's led way to this incredible career. It's very astute of you to have made that decision at such a young age, who counseled you? Did you get advice or? 
You know, I spent, that's a very good question. Bob Bruce gave me three people that I could do reference checks on him. He's like, you know, you're 24 years old. You probably think this is the craziest decision you're going to ever make. Here's three people you should call. So I called these three people. And one of them was John Freund, who was Warren Buffett's trader. And John at Salmon Brothers, and I had this long conversation with John to this day, is, is a dear friend of mine. He lives in Chicago. Um, and he was like, this opportunity is unbelievable that you're being offered. You don't quite appreciate it, but this opportunity to go work with Bob, who was at Cumberland Associates, uh, and to really learn the business and train and then get access to Buffett and all this kind of stuff is unbelievable. And I also turned to my parents. My mom was like, you know, to thy own self be true. You have to listen to your instincts. And your if your instincts are telling you to do, do this as opposed to going to Fidelity or another big firm, then, you know, and what do you have to lose at 24 years old? You take a risk and it doesn't work out. You could always figure something else out to do. Yeah. I mean, it's quite something to leave Goldman Sachs though, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. it's quite a brave decision. So what made you go back to Minneapolis St. Paul? Now, you don't know, but I've been having a dialogue with Sue, your secretary, and I was explaining that I have been to Minneapolis St. Paul many times. And um, I was telling her that I think the French fries at the fairgrounds are the best French fries in the world because yeah. I remember them dearly. But it's not an obvious place for an investor. And no. it's hot in the summer, cold yeah. in the winter. You could have gone anywhere. What, what was the... <laughs> you know, it was a it was a quality of life issue. Mm -hmm. You know, I was I was reverse commuting from New York up to Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, and, you know, back then, Greenwich is not what it is today. You know, it's a vibrant community. And back then people would reverse commute into the city and it was it, there weren't a lot, a lot of young people up there. And so it was a reverse commute. And I just I was ready to return home to the Twin Cities. I, I, you know, I, I just knew, and I always had this dream to have my own investment firm. And I was How like, were you? I, I, well, I, at 29 years old. So this is where this all started. So I had this notebook that I talk about, which to this day, I now still carry around. You know, you can get these at Staples or Office Depot or whatever for $2. But I had a notebook that I carried around. Because of all the wonderful people that Bob Bruce and and that I had met through working at a Fireman's Fund, and I carried this notebook around. If I have my own firm one day, what will it look like? And I, the characteristics of the philosophy, people I admire, admired, people that 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 were successful, and why were they successful? And people that I really that I had that I thought were at some point would be people I could tap into not to get money from to manage, but just in terms of this is my dream. And, you know, what would you, you know, just people that were on this, that had done what I was hoping to do. So I carried this notebook around and I figured, you know, I probably could go back to the Twin Cities because born and raised there and execute on this dream much easier than on the East Coast because I had a much deeper network in the Twin Cities. And you know what? Warren Buffett lived in Omaha, Nebraska, and he was, he did it. And I was like, you know what? You know, and today any people work from all over, but I figured if he did it from Omaha, Nebraska, I could I could do this from Minneapolis. Now, and just for the benefit of the American listeners, which actually are the majority of the listeners are the biggest um, community of listeners to the podcast. If you are going to buy a notebook like Beth's, please buy it from Office Depot because David Einhorn <laughs> recommended that stock. And um, 
I think okay. that would be better than buying it from Staples. Not that I'm familiar particularly, <laughs> but I had Chris, a guy called Chris Pavese on the podcast who runs the Broyhill family office. And I had him on the podcast because I'd read some stuff he'd written. And I thought he was, this guy's really smart and it was a really popular show. But we talked at length about he lives in North Carolina in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And he said this gives him a massive advantage. And I didn't agree with him because I said, look, I've done this job and I was based in London and I did global investing. And any big company that wants to be in the capital markets comes through London. And so I could see any company in the world if I just sat there long enough. And um, if I'd been in, I don't even know where, Lenoir, I think, if I'd been there, nobody's coming there, right? Now, I'm sure a few companies come to St. Paul. But what do you think about this, about being detached from the crowd versus being in the thick of it and, you know, being able to go to conferences that are just to get on the subway and go to one and see more companies? It can't be. It, it's not a one way bet. I mean, what are the disadvantages of living in St. Paul? And from an investing point of view, I mean. You know, I will tell you that the disadvantages are, yes, you don't have access to all that. Now, of course, the pandemic has completely changed that. Now, yeah, no, no, sure. everything is virtual, right? A lot is virtual. Uh, but, 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 I mean, there's a big difference between talking to a chief executive face to face and talking to him on Zoom. Yep. Yes. I can't tell. I if If we were sitting in the same room and you were lying to me, I would be able to tell from your body language on Zoom, I would find it much more difficult. Yeah. Now, let me. Yes. Now, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, and, and we'll get into this, but for the types of public companies that we're investing in here at Polad, we, we run a internally managed portfolio. A lot of them don't go to New York for conferences. So, the you know, does it make a difference if the difference is we're going to their headquarters to meet with them? where you're looking into the whites of their eyes and you're seeing the interaction between the CEO and the CFO, you know, so, and 15 or 20 minutes at a at a conference when it's speed dating and they're, they've got a lot of demands on their time versus two hours in their headquarters. There's no comparison. Oh, no, no. Uh, sure. And I, I take yeah. that. So, I mean, you, you like meeting management. That's a big part of your process. Very, very, very important part of the process. I mean, it, it, as important as all the analytical work that we do behind the scenes in terms of the the 10K, the 10Q, the, the proxy statement, everything, really important. And do you have a, a sort of standard procedure so that if you're seeing a company for the first time, you've got a standard procedure, and if you're seeing a company, a repeat visit, you've got standard procedure. How do you how do you approach? So let's say I was achieving, I mean, obviously, Nobody would let me be the chief executive of anything. But let's say I was the chief executive of a company. You know, how would you open? How would you get me to feel relaxed and and be honest and open with you? Sure. I mean, you have techniques. Yeah. So for the most part, these companies that we're investing in are a billion mar and market cap below. So they're not well covered by Wall Street. The story's not fully understand. There, they might be there might be one or two analysts that cover it, or or not none. And so it starts with a thorough preparation before we even call the company to really understand the business that they're in. What is it? What is it worth? So you do a deep analysis five years back in terms of the in income statement, cash flow, balance sheet, understanding the business, all the drivers, everything. Really get your hands around it and then determine what you think the company is worth. And that, and that process 
it takes hours. Okay. And then if you decide that it makes sense to really start to dig in more, then it might be a phone call mm-hmm. with the company. And then it's like, okay, we want to come see you. And the process and, and the process of going to see them is not to gather information about how fast are they going to grow and what are they going to earn next quarter? The, the, it, no. We're, we're, no. <laughs> Our process is, you know, what's your strategic direction for this company? What's this business going to look like in three to five years? Because we tend to, we want to own things for the long term, right? We're not trying to, taxes are very important to us. And so, and it's compounding. And so we're looking out. And ideally, what you want to do is own this something for a long, 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 long time. Okay. So, you know, how do you compensate the board? How do you compensate your management team? Are our metrics tied to return on invested capital and improving margins or earnings per share? And, you know, you want to meet with the CEO and the CFO. You want to walk through the plants. When you walk, when you meet with the CEO and the CFO at the same time, when you ask the CFO a question, does the C- CEO answer or does he let the C- he or she let the CFO answer? So there's all these business questions. But there's all these intangibles that are so important, Steve, that you just talked about in terms of face-to-face that are really important in terms of investing in companies. And how, I mean, so let's say you've invested in my company and how often would you come and see me? Uh, You know, for the most part, once a year, I would say, Um, and see you once a year and then talk to you on the phone multiple times a year and you build a dialogue up and and these companies, and for the most part, we've got this deep database. So, you know, we've we've been following these companies for a long time and they they for the most part know who we are and know who I am. And so when you pick up the phone, you know, and we're not activists. That's the other piece about this. We don't we don't get in activist campaigns and try to get companies to do things. I mean, one of the many gifts that Mario Gabelli gave me was he does he files 13 Ds, but not because he wants to be an activist, but because he wants to engage in constructive dialogue about the businesses. And if he if you file a 13F, you can't do that. But if you file a D, you can make suggestions about board members, business, how to run the business, things like that. But but again, we're not trying to tell them how to run their business. But given our years of experience, I think we can add value around the edges. And you you talked about walking around the shop floor. I mean, do you... Yeah. Do you always visit the operation? I mean, what happens if the, the HQ's not an operating place? Will you go to the plan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's that's been, you know, if I look back at two mistakes, you know, we, we all make mistakes in this business. If I look back at some of, some of the biggest mistakes I've made is I didn't pay attention to the red flags that the, that the operations showed me. One was there was this uh, mining equipment company many years ago called Manitowoc. And um, they talked about being an EVA company and very cost conscious and returns focused and all this kind of stuff. And we went to go visit them in Milwaukee. And they had the biggest, fanciest headquarters I've ever seen. And it was very inconsistent with the message they were they were conveying. And then there were other issues with how they calculated their EVA and taking out items and not including everything. And so I didn't pitch in that. And then the other one was Samsonite. That company had come public and I went to go visit their factory. They were in Denver, Colorado. And the, the factory was a mess. I mean, it was a mess and I didn't pay attention. It was a mess. There was inventory all over. It was just a mess. And there were so many red flags and I didn't pay attention. That's the luggage company. Yeah. 
And they ended up, we got out. And then I think they filed bankruptcy and then went through a reorg and all that kind of stuff. This must be some time ago. It was a long time ago. Yep. Well, it's good that your mistakes are long, long in the past. And (laughs) good that you remember them. So clearly. That's, you know what? I learned my biggest lesson through my mistakes, not through the successes. Yeah. It's all, always the, the, the same with every, every, every endeavor, but particularly with investing. If you enjoy this podcast, you're bound to enjoy our free newsletter on Substack. It's a weekly email on interesting investing topics. Visit BehindTheBalanceSheet.com and hit the sign up button. While you're there, you might want to check out our brilliant online investor training school. Hundreds of students have taken our flagship Analyst Academy course, which teaches you everything you need to become a serious equity investor. And if you're a professional investor, we run a forensic accounting course for institutional clients and soon a cohort-based course for serious amateurs. Email us at info at behindthebalancesheet.com. Now, I was going to ask you, we were talking about your career and then I got sidetracked with the meetings, but um, you were a woman in back when it was quite difficult to be a woman in an investment in, environment and quite unusual. I mean, did you, what was it like being a woman in a man's world? Or maybe maybe that's more a London thing. Maybe New York's more equitable. You know, that's that's a very good question, Steve. I didn't think very much about it. I, I honestly... I, I, it didn't, you know, my mother, she was very involved in the community and she was on a, a public bo- company board. And I don't say that because I came. Yeah, I didn't come from a privileged background by any stretch of the imagination, but I had a really strong role model. And so I didn't think very much about it. And and I had very supportive parents and I had this dream to go to Wall Street. And so I knew it was what I wanted to do. Yeah. And so well, then, yeah. it didn't it, it I didn't think too much about it. And, you know. That, yes, there were times when I felt like I was maybe, I don't know if the word is discriminated against or whatever the case may be, but um, I didn't think too much about it because I just had this dream. Why do you think there aren't more women investors? Because they, you're better at investing. Yeah? I mean, I, I, I get terrible pushback when I say these, make these generalities. But in my experience, women tend to be more cautious, more balanced. Let much more risk averse. And if you're more risk averse, you're not, not necessarily going to be a better investor. You wouldn't have been a better investor in the last 10 years. But generally speaking, it, you, yeah. I found that, you know, women have been safer pairs of hands. Can, can I say that? Yeah. Yeah. I think women are more patient. Mm. You know, they, 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 I, my experience is, is that, uh, you know, there's less, and I've read about this, there's less ego involved in yes. terms of yeah. decisions. And it's like, okay, if I make a bad decision, I'll own up to it and then move on. Or, you know, instead of taking it on, like I'm a bad person or I'm a terrible, it, it, there's less ego involved. That's my feeling. And I would just say, you know, I think this is, there's this perception, Steve, of this industry is demanding and it it is a demanding industry there's no doubt about it oh, i mean long hours and but but there's a perception of you can't have a balanced life and i will tell you that i have three children at home and you know i would say that the wonderful thing about the investment business is it doesn't matter what time of the day you're reading a 10k or a 10q or a proxy statement and so you know you can be you can be 
at the office until five or five thirty. Go ha- home and have your di- dinner with your kids, and 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 then put them to bed, and then do your work. And and so there's a there's just a perception of that it's more demanding than it is. And I think that yes, it's demanding, but you can also work around that. And I think the pandemic has been wonderful in that way. So it's yeah. So that's that's yeah. I mean, the flexibility is, is certainly an important thing. So you sold out to Mario Gabelli, and then yeah. you set up again on your own, and yep. then you joined the Polad companies. What was the attraction? Well, well, what was it like working with Mario? And then what was the attraction of, of the Polad group? So I, it was one of those moments in my intuition, and I, I, I was working for Mario, and I was like, you know, I'd started Woodland Partners with two gentlemen, and then we sold it to Mario, and it was that real desire to can I really do this on my own? Can a woman go out and start a firm on her own and raise capital and not have to feel like she needs to have a a, a man, right? I mean, a, you know, to give her legitimacy. And so that dream of that notebook, you know, I still had that notebook, but this was, okay, this is going to be really be, let's see if, if I can, I had this track record. I had all these relationships. I had the credibility and the strong track record. And I was like, I'm going to try this. If I don't try this, I will regret it. It's that little thing. And I'm like, well, if it doesn't work, I can always do something different. And I had a very supportive spouse and decided, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I left Mario and he was very wonderful. I mean, you know, he we, we departed on very good terms. He gave me my track record, which is, you know, very unusual. And I went out and I raised a couple hundred million dollars. And one of the clients that I had raised money from was the Polet family. And I had known them since I had moved back to the Twin Cities because we had started the Woodland Partners and the Polet offices, Polet family offices were in the same building. And so I would ride the elevator with Carl Polad, who was the patriarch, who was the, the founder. And Mario was one of the largest shareholders in Pepsi Americas. And Bob Polad was running Pepsi America. So after we sold to Mario, he said to me, we own a lot of stock in Pepsi Americas. Get on the elevator and go upstairs and talk to Bob Polad about it. So Bob and I developed this relationship and friendship and all this kind of stuff. And and so, you know, I had started Crocus Hill Partners and they gave me capital to manage. And so the CIO was retiring and they called me up and after about a year into Crocus Hill Partners or a year and a half and said, you know, this is kind of a crazy phone call. And I don't know if you'd be interested, but our CIO is retiring and you manage a portion of our assets. And we're wondering if you'd be willing to come in and lead the investment team and be our chief investment officer. So I spent, you know, a fair amount of time talking to him. And, you know, it was one of those moments, Steve, where you say, geez, what fun, you know, kind of like this came out of left field. And what a fun opportunity to be involved in all these different asset classes, still managing money learn about this world of private equity that I did not have a lot of exposure to and work for this incredible family. It was really, it was just one of those moments where I was like, it was a moment I didn't want to pass up, just an opportunity. And it was probably one of the best, that and going to work for Bob Bruce were two of the best decisions I ever made. What did you say to the people? I mean, what happened to the the firm, the new firm that you just started 18 months ago? So I returned the capital to the partners. And I called them up and I said, thank you very much. But I, I just want to let you know, I've been given this opportunity and this is really hard. And I know you entrusted me with your capital. You know, the good news is, I and I don't say this out of any arrogance, the money they gave me, I gave them back more than they had given me. So it's not like they'd lost money with me. And as a matter of fact, quite a few of them had done very pretty well. And, and they, were, they, 
were they sympathetic? Were they were they understanding? They were understanding, and and they were also very supportive. And as a matter of fact, one of the clients today, I had a pretty good relationship when when I was managing capital. Now we have a really good relationship, and another family foundation out on the East Coast. I'm helping them out on as a, a volunteer position on their investment committee. So it's led way to all these relationships that I didn't expect to have. So they oh, were understanding. Usually when you part company with a fund manager, it's for bad reasons, not, you know. Right. So it's kind of a, it's kind of like a weird thing. Somebody's giving you. Yeah. But you know what? The good news is I gave them back more money than they have given me. So they were not upset. No, all that. And they understood. And what's it like managing money for a family? How's it different from running a fund? I mean, there must Mm. be having permanent capital. Yep. Not having multiple clients, but having one client, I mean, you've got to get on with them. Yep. So Carl Polad was the patriarch, and then there were three sons, Jim, Bob, and Bill, and then they have seven children. And I would say that the reason I took this job was because of the family mm-hmm. and, the, of course, the opportunity. They're a wonderful family. And, you know, it's really, and I say that out of complete sincerity and honesty, they're an incredible family. Who they are as people, their commitment to the community, they live with integrity and honesty. And so you always feel like you're doing the right thing, working for them. They're not going to be listening to this. I, it, it, Steve, I, 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 <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, but I, it, it, you know what? If you ask anybody about the Polar family, they will give you the same thing. They're just incredible. What Their commitment to the t- Minnesota Twins, the baseball team, you know, during the pandemic, they didn't lay off one person. So j- they're just a great family to work for. They, they've got some really amazing interests and a very wide variety of interests. And yes, kind of all do their own thing. They've got the entertainment, the baseball, and then the industrial stuff. So, they, yep. I mean, how do they, how do they work with you? I mean, do they say, do you have any guardrails, things that you can't do? Or do they just <laughs> say, look, here's $4 billion, whatever it is, and get on with it, Beth. You're funny. So, so you know, they have the operating businesses, which is United Properties, Northmark. So they've got United Properties, Northmark Capital, real estate businesses. They've got Par Systems, which is an automation business, and then car dealerships. And we have people running those businesses. Yeah. Then there's the Minnesota Twins, which they own 100% of, and then the Minnesota United, which is the professional soccer team. Oh, they've got and, a soccer team. I missed that completely. Yeah. yeah. Minnesota United. We, the family owns part of the Minnesota United. Then they've got a foundation. We yep. manage the assets for the foundation. And then they've got River Road, which is the movie production studio, which is Bill Polad. So, and then they have the financial assets. So that's what our group manages for them. So the guardrails are, I mean, you know, we get somewhat involved with the Minnesota Twins because there's an accelerator program with startups and things like that. And sometimes we'll, I'll get involved with those other operating businesses to talk about car dealerships and things like that, because so many other families, wealthy families own dealerships. So there's connectivity, right? But f- but we, I, I oversee the group and help make, de- make the decisions for the financial assets for the family, which are public equities, private equity funds. And then we have a direct private equity portfolio of 13 companies. So it's fascinating. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the private, the, yeah. the individual companies, but why do you own private equity funds? So you know my theory, and I'm go- I'm, we're regarding this on Friday, the 16th of June. On the 18th of June, my sub stack is going to be about private equity. Now, private equity, I think, is doomed. 
And, Do you um, Why is that? Well, I mean, I, I was looking at that, you know, it peaked, the, the quoted sector peaked at, I think, $370 billion, now $250 billion. And, you know, private equity has benefited enormously from tailwind, falling interest rates. Yep. And they're now managing too much money. They've got too many mouths to feed and they've acquired all the cheap assets. So, you know, they've got all their marks are too high, I would wager. So they've, yeah. you know, they just cannot do what they've done in the last decades. Now, I know they're doing some other stuff. Private credit. I wrote about that last week. That doesn't look too clever. No. That's going to be a disaster. It's already a disaster. I mean, since I wrote, the Financial Times had an article in the week about how, how many defaults there'd been. I mean, I, I think the defaults this year are more twice what they were in the whole of last year. Yeah. And we're only, we only just, we're halfway through June. I agree with you about private credit. Here's what I will tell you about private equity. And it's how we approach public our public portfolio in terms of investments that we're making in these misunderstood, not well-covered companies. I believe that there are private equity managers out there that have unique strategies in parts of the market where they're going to generate strong returns. And that those are the managers that we're looking to identify that have very unique strategies. And there's so many private companies across the United States that are available for sale or at some point might be available for sale. I mean, this is where entrepreneurism and capitalism is alive and well. I mean, the United States has a, has a plethora of them. And so we're looking to identify managers that are investing in those types of companies. So Unique very, managers. We're not, we're manager. not, yeah, we are not just blindly allocating capital to these multi, multi-billion dollar funds. We have this very deliberate effort to build relationships with unique firms implementing unique strategies that are differentiated, that have generated strong returns, and we think are going to generate strong returns going forward. I, I, I'm not saying that nobody's going to make money in private equity. Don't get, don't get me wrong. And one of my one of my friends here runs a family office for a, a billionaire, and he's been doing a bit of um, secondary stuff in private equity funds where he's been buying, you know, effectively distressed sellers selling stuff at a discount. And, you know, you can see, the, you can see that that sort of thing's can be can be quite attractive um definitely opportunities but um and it's interesting you share my skepticism and private credit it's oh. um but the, the you know the private credit i think will come back to haunt the private equity people so they're going to have this funny i think there's going to be a funny period because you know people will own credit in a business in which another part of the organization's got the got the equity and yep. and there's going to be all sorts of shenanigans, I suspect. You mentioned that, that quite a lot of families own car dealerships. Why why is that a popular thing for wealthy families? Is there it's not a tax thing? No, you know what? Here's they generate a lot of cash. So you think about these dealerships, they're great businesses to own. I mean, the service component is unbelievable. That's where all these dealerships make the most amount of their money. And so they generate a lot of cash. But they're a, a finite life, right? Because the service component isn't going to, you know, in 15 years, we're all going to be driving around in little robot-driven tiny cars. Well, maybe not in America, but, you know, here in London, you know, I reckon that it won't be 15 years before they've got, got us all in these little... Do you remember Google did a car, a little tiny car? I've got, I use a picture of it in one of my presentations. And it... When we're all driving around in, in little electric cars, then there isn't going to be any service income. 
you know, I think that is a very, I think that's a long way off. I mean, I, the demand for cars is like 15, I, I don't know what the number is going to be this year, 15 or 16 million million cars. It yep. just, it, it continues. I mean, you know, yes, we have, there's a softness, but the demand for cars is unbelievable. You know, it's funny. I, my car that I drive is 12 years old. 12 years old. 12 years old. Because I'm a value investor. I only buy used cars. I read that, that you'd only, bu- you'd like to buy cars with 5,000 miles on it. And I yep. thought, well, now she's working for this firm that owns, this family yep. that owns these car dealerships. Yep. These fans have a new car. I was going to ask you. Well, you know what? I've got my eye on a new car. I'm not going to, a car that I want, and I'm waiting for it, for it to, to come onto one of the lots with low mileage. And I've already spoken to our nice guy, Chase Hawkins, who run our car dealerships. And I said, all right, when somebody trades this exact car in with 5,000 miles, I'm ready. It's, you know, you figure you drive a new car off the lot, it immediately depreciates. It's like the world's worst investment. You're speaking to, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a petrol head and um, I've owned a lot of cars and I've only bought a new car, I think twice in my life, might be three times. I'm trying to remember. And so I I completely agree with you. But you've got to be, you know, if you're particular about what you want. Yeah. Then, you know, I understand a new car, but the, the, the depreciation is ridiculous. But the the electric car, as we get more electric cars, the service component is going to go down, right? So I'm not sure. I, 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 I'm just interested because you, you're obviously looking at it from the inside. Yeah. And when I look at it and I think about valuing a car dealership, I think that's quite a difficult business to value because in 10 years time, the service component may be a very significantly reduced component. And it, selling cars, you do make a bit of margin on the car, but it's quite competitive. Yeah, and it is. It's, it's a razor blade type of model. Yes, it is. And yes, okay, there's going to be a big park of cars that will continue to need servicing. But if I think about what we're going to have to be doing to combat climate change, yep. we're going to make it, I mean, maybe not so much in the United States, but I think even there, the government will be under pressure to make it more expensive to people to drive internal combustion engines. And if you can just plug in a laptop or download a piece of software from the cloud, there isn't a lot of profit in that. And the profit accrues not to the middleman, but to the OEM. So Mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, a dealership is not a business that I would like to be in 10, 15, 20 years from now. And I think the problem with those sorts of businesses is it's very hard to understand when they'll start to be derated. So, I mean, am I wrong? I mean, am I missing something? I don't know. Well, I, you know, I, I, I think there's some logic to your argument about electric cars, but I don't think in combustion engines are going to go away any, anytime soon. I really don't. I do not think it's, I don't think the world's going to move to all electric vehicles. I mean, you know, the family opened, we opened a Ferrari dealership in the midst of the pandemic. Okay. Just to give you a sense of consumers. Now I know what you're going to get. Now you're telling me you got a Ferrari <laughs> no, dealership. No, 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 no. I can funny. see you. I can see um, you no. in that new SUV. <laughs> I'm not sure what, I don't even know what that new SUV runs. You get a half a million dollars, maybe? Uh, I mean, honestly, I I don't know. You know, I am a Ferrari fan and I have, oh. Do you and I have children and I have children rather than a Ferrari, but um, they so they are so expensive now though. Yes, they are. But it, But that's the one car that when you drive it off the lot, it doesn't depreciate. No, one of my one of my friends um, used to buy a new one every year, and he they used to give him the same price for his old one. 
So he was very high up in the list. So they used to order the new one exactly the same. I was like, why don't you just change the color? You used to have the same car, just with a different, you know, in, yeah. in England, the number plate changes each year. And now every six months. Yeah. It's exactly the same car, just a different number in the front. Very, very funny. And it was, it was the cheapest car in the world. But, um, yeah. So tell me, you said, I think, in an interview that you were very cheap and you like to pay 65 cents on the dollar or buy the car with 5,000 miles on it. So I yeah. wanted to understand what, how you operate. So when you can't find 65 cents on the dollar dollar bills, what did you do? You just hold cash? And did you do that when you're running the fund? And you do that yeah. with family? Is it? Yeah, you just hold cash. And how do you manage when the cash builds up? Do you not feel? You know, there was a point in time, I think the highest level of cash in the portfolio was 20 or 25%. But I have, for the most part, given the part of the market that we fish in, there's always there, there were always inexpensive stocks. Always. So the highest cash level is 25%, but that was just a very short period in time. Yeah. Yeah. We're not making market calls. It's more about opportunities. I, who knows where the stock market's going to go? There, there were people out there saying the market was going to be down this year and look what it's doing now. So we don't. We're, it's very hard to prog- be a prognosticator about the stock market. It, we're just investing in businesses and, and where they're valued. And there's always inexpensive stocks. And given you know your situation now, will you just hold those stocks forever? Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty. That's the one piece. I remember when I went in to tell Bob Bruce that I was going back home to the to the Twin Cities, he said to me, and it was one of the best pieces of advice he said to me, he said, you know, the beauty of, of this operation, which I don't, if you're lucky enough to replicate it is you have one client. And the one client at that point was Fireman's Fund because we were managing the insurance assets, much like Berkshire, you know, the insurance assets there that Todd Combs and Ted run. Um, and that's the beauty of what we do here at the Polettes. We have one client. So if you don't, I mean, you know, if you don't find an opportunity to put capital work, you just sit on the cash. The family thinks in terms of decades, decades, not and, years. I mean, what What is the plan? Are you like building a Berkshire Hathaway conglomerate? Because you've got the private companies. And, <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that kind of, it, you don't have the insurance float, but. We don't have the float. But yes, I mean, it's, I like to say, you know, the family, it's like, we don't have the insurance assets, but the goal is to have like a mini Berkshire. Yep. When you think about where you invest, you've got a lot of expertise in-house, say, on car dealerships. Yep. That means that you're more likely to go and invest in a public company car dealership or less likely. Do you, I mean, do you take that domain expertise and apply it or do you say, oh, we've got enough car dealerships, we don't, don't want more of them? Right. You know, I would say our goal is to be a diversifier for the family, our portfolio, so we're not going to own, we do not invest in real estate in our portfolio, given our exposure through United Properties to commercial and industrial real estate in the Twin Cities, Denver, and Austin, Texas. And we won't invest in sports teams because, you know, of the Minnesota Twins and the Minnesota United. So we view ourselves as a diversifier. We might own an auto stock in the portfolio if we think it's inexpensive, but we certainly aren't going to make an investment in our in our direct private equity portfolio in auto dealerships. We, we, we view ourselves as a diversifier. And where do you find the private equity opportunities? I mean, do people just come to you and say, Beth, you look like you're quite, well, you've got quite a lot of money to invest. We've got a business for sale. Or, or is it contacts or 
how does it and do you fully own these or do you part ownership with other families or how does it work so our team in our direct private equity portfolio it's all minority ownership anything that's majority owned is considered part of the operating businesses so that would roll up that would be through correlated companies um so they're all minority i would say that the opportunities come to us through a whole host of ways um relationships with other families you know there's a lot of families like to club up with each other um they come through private equity firms that might offer us co-investment opportunities or it might be an industry that we're really interested in and we've identified this as an industry that is a good business and are looking and and then we go and we're in the midst of trying to do this deal and we've identified a good management team that we want to organically grow this this business. So, you know, but I will tell you that that there's some core fundamental aspects to what we're looking for, characteristics, which is it needs to be a good business with a strong management team and the right incentives in place with that management team and have the right partners. Those characteristics are really important to us. I mean that and that those characteristics also apply to our private equity funds portfolio as well as well as our public portfolio. It's very consistent. Good businesses, good partners, good management teams and good valuations. It's just, you know, and I like to say the price you pay going in determines your return. So we're very 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 strict about price and and very disciplined about price. And how long do you hold those for? Well, I mean, you know, it gets back to the tax issue. If we could hold them forever, that would be great. In the case of some of these co-investments, you know, you're you're making them maybe with a private equity firm and they have a five to seven year time frame. So you're going to sell. If you're with another family, it might be forever. So, you know, if it's a really good business and it continues to create value and compound, we will hold it forever. Have you ever bought out the private equity firms? You like the company and they they needed to next it. Have you ever done that? Or that's a good question. We've looked at a couple. We've we've seriously considered two different transactions, but the price was such that it didn't make sense. All right, and so we decided to sell. And presumably, the businesses that you that you wholly own aren't for sale. But I mean, is it one of these things that they that the businesses you own you want to have forever? Or if somebody comes along and says, I really want a Ferrari dealership, can I'll buy yours? I mean, is there any turnover in the main part of the I you know what? I think that if somebody came and offered a ridiculous price for the Ferrari dealership or a ridiculous price for United Properties or a, a crazy price for the Minnesota Twins, the family wouldn't you know, I think they'd entertain it. But you know, that's a family decision. I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a yeah, really no, no, good, sure. It's not your yeah. It's not it's not our decision, but you know, there's a lot of capital out there, so you you never know. And you know, you're talking about managing sort of generational wealth, and we're now facing an inflationary environment. How does that change your thinking and the family's thinking? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think it would it change it. The thinking only would apply to interest rates. It, I mean, inflation is, we've had such a low inflation environment for such a long time. I think in terms of the impact on interest rates, because interest rates are going up. So, you know, inflation in the economy is a little, is healthy, right? In a way. Okay. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit is healthy. You know, what we've gone through has been uh, very challenging, but hopefully the Federal Reserve has it under control. I'm more focused on interest rates. 
and what that those impact have on in terms of our portfolio and the environment and the ability to get transactions done and financing. And I think this environment is going to create some good opportunities. So, yeah, no, I think I'm I'm sure that that's right. And you have a big team. Yes, there's ten of us on the team, including myself. And how? What do they all do? Are they all are they sectorally specialized or? Yep. So we have several team members devoted to public equities and private equity funds. Mm-hmm. They focus on on third party managers in those sectors, and then we have a direct investment team. So people are you know, and we share a lot of information. You know, one of the most important things I learned again is just the importance of in, of sharing of information. And Mario was very good about this. You know, he would he would have a morning meeting, and everybody in the firm would come together on the research and portfolio manager time and teams and talk about what they're working, what things they found, transactions. And so it's all about sharing of information and how that information applies to what you do. But yeah, so we're, we are focused on our asset. People are focused on their asset classes. So we've got teams focused on those asset classes. But you don't, you wouldn't have a morning meeting every day. No, not now during the pandemic we did. Oh, really? Yeah. We had a Zoom meeting every single morning. Now we meet formally on Monday mornings. Then there's team meetings during the course of the week for the public equities and the private equity funds and then the directs. So we we have sub subsector meetings. And what would make you sell one of your stocks? How often does that happen? Um well we will sell one of the stocks in the portfolio, I'd say for for two reasons. One, it's reached its fair value. You know, I talk about the valuation of wanting to buy something at 65% of, of what it, we think it's worth. And over time, that gap will close. But sometimes what happens is that gap doesn't close. And so even though the stock moves up, there's still a significant discount. Okay. So you're going to hold it for it until that gap. So we'll we'll sell it when it gets to be 100% of what we think it's worth or 110% of what we think it's worth. And we don't think that if we project out a couple more years, it'll go even higher the value. So we'll say, okay, we're going to take it off because everything's discounted. The other time we will sell is if uh, either there's been a significant change with the management team and we're not comfortable with the management team, or there's been a change in strategy. And, you know, a perfect example would be we meet with them and there's, you know, there's cash on the balance sheet and they we say, what are you going to do? And they say, we're going to buy back stock. And then all of a sudden, six months later, they're not buying back stock, but they're using that cash and issuing equity to make a big acquisition that we can't wrap our hands around. So if there's a change in strategy or change in management, that's when we sell. And if it reaches fair value, you're prepared to take the tax hit. Yep. Yep. You're that prepared to take quite the difficult. Tax. Yeah. It is it is difficult. But you know, the market, it's amazing. You know, the market will will if you don't take start to be more if you're not dis- selling is harder than buying. If you're not disciplined about selling, you know, you're going to leave money on the table. And so we are very disciplined about selling, as disciplined as we are about buying. And can you tell me what your portfolio turnover is? Is it, is it quite low? Or? Oh, it's very low. It's I would say it's like 5%. Oh, right. Okay. So it's, yeah. Yeah. No. yeah. Now, listen, I, I'm really grateful for your time. And I, I don't want to keep you because I'm sure you've got a very busy day. And I always ask people the last question, same last question. Is there a book or a practice you would recommend to a young person coming into investing? And I loved your notebook. And I'm sure you're going to t- say to a young, young person that they should 
carry a notebook at all times. But any other practices, any other, or a book that you would, a book would be good if you recommend a book. Yeah. So there was this book that was written five, I can't remember, a while ago called The Outsiders. Oh, yeah. Thorndike. Yep. That is one of the best books that I've ever read about in terms of investing. Just it talks about how those CEOs were just visionaries. And I just, how they approached capital allocation. I found that book fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. It is a good book. Yeah, it's a great book. And do you have anything else other than the notebook? Carry a notebook at all times. I really like that. No. Um, write thank you notes. Write thank you notes. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but, you know, I remember early in on my career, this is before people, this is embarrassing, but email was not what it is. And I would go to see a company and I always sat down and wrote thank you notes to the CEO and whoever I met with. And then, and I always, people would always say, boy, thank you for your thank you note. That meant a lot. People just would visit us and never write thank you notes. And so I, you know, I, and I learned that as a child to, to write thank you notes and it really makes a difference. So I always, and my, and my kids, I make my kids, well, now they're, you know, and they're teenagers, but they still write thank you notes. I make my children write thank you notes. I, yep. I, we have a lovely American friend who, since my kids, have, since they were born, has sent them a, a, a significant gift every Christmas. Yep. And I give, I mean, it's like bizarre. You know, he'd not met my children until they were 13 and 15. And I said, you, you, you have to make time to meet. He's, he's a very, very wealthy guy. And he, he you know, he's he lives in both sides of the Atlantic and he doesn't have much time. Said, my children think you don't exist. But I love the I love the idea of the thank you note. Funnily enough, I never wrote to a company to say thank you because I always thought I was doing them a favor by investing. And maybe that was slightly arrogant of me. Although one thing I felt was that brokers were neglected. And having been a broker myself, yeah, I thought. You know, I remember the nice clients and we would very rarely do lunches. But, you know, once a year you would have lunch with your main. I would have lunch with my main brokers and I always wrote them a thank you letter. And you know what? I was they I mean, obviously, I was giving them large amounts of commission. So, you know, I was their friend, but I was always the, I was always their most important and enjoyable call for that reason, because they knew that I understood where they came from and i think people don't appreciate their suppliers enough it's quite funny yeah Listen. the other piece of advice is trust yourself oh that's a good one yeah i as i said you know going to work for bob bruce and jack Byrne at fireman's fund people thought i was crazy and then this opportunity with the polets i mean it's it's like just trust yourself things will always work out and you just have to trust your own instincts nobody knows what's the best for you except yourself so that's great yeah because thank you so much i've really enjoyed talking to you you don't invest internationally i think you should come to london there's a lot of cheap stocks <laughs> and when you do make sure you look me up and next yeah. time i'm in st paul i don't i don't know when i'll next go to st paul the reason i went to st paul is because i'm a petrol head and they used to hold the street rod nationals in oh. St. Paul, Minnesota, which is a gathering of pre-1948 cars. So it'd be like yeah. 10,000 pre-1948 cars and St. Paul's fairgrounds were the, yeah. the nicest fairgrounds that they used to hold them at. 
they now hold them every year in Louisville, Kentucky, which okay. has got the, you know, terrible fairgrounds, no shade, concrete, and yep. not nearly as attractive. But um, you never know, I may make it. Back. Okay. And London is my favorite, is, is my favorite city. Oh, so you, you do come here? Yeah. But that's not for business, that's for pleasure. Sometimes I come for business to visit managers. All right, well, you know where I am. I know where you are, Steve. I look forward to seeing you. Yeah, thank you so much. No, thank you. I really, really, I really enjoyed talking to you. I really appreciate it. This is great. Have a great day. All right, you too. Bye. Well, Beth Lilly is a formidable lady. If you watch the video version of this podcast on YouTube, you'll see that we had great fun recording this. I learned a lot, although I'm still curious as to what Beth's new car will be. Beth is an inspiring role model, especially for a young woman considering a career in investing. This podcast, I'm afraid, has a male-dominated audience, and I would love it if more women would listen. So please, please, share this episode with a woman friend, especially one who's considering a career move. Thanks as ever for listening, and please feel free to share it with all your male friends as well.